0: It's 1954, nighttime. A ferry is crossing the English Channel. Two Danish men are leaning on the rails. One is a toy buyer for Copenhagen's biggest department store. The other is from a family of toy makers. They're coming home from a toy convention. The toy buyer looks up from the waves and sighs. Ah, what an industry this is. There's no system. Every toy is different from the next. Hey, so what's the solution? The toy maker asks <laughs> I do that again. <laughs> so ridiculous. <laughs> so what's the solution? The toy maker asks. A system. The buyer answers. A system. So when you buy one toy and then the next and then the next, they all work together. There's something connecting them. The toy maker frowns and stares back at the waves. A memory of a toy his father made is floating to the surface. It's a memory of some small plastic bricks Hey, hey, hello and welcome once again to another episode of Patented. It's a podcast about the history of inventions brought to you from history hit. I am your host, Dallas Campbell. Like many people, I think like most people, I grew up with Lego. Lego wasn't just my favorite toy. It was pretty much the only toy I had in my life. Wait, that sounds a bit dramatic. I don't mean it like that. I did have other toys, but Lego was the toy I would go to all the time. I had a big bag of Lego. And for me, and for most people, I suppose, the exciting thing about Lego was the possibilities that when you put your hand in this bag of Lego and just pulled out these multicolored bricks, anything was possible. It was really, really exciting. And then as I got older and Lego developed, I was at that exciting moment in the late 70s, early 80s, where space Lego became a thing. And you had these wonderful pictures on the front cover of spaceships that you could actually build. Suddenly there was a destination, a thing to actually build that was very, very exciting. And I remember, Building spaceships and then extending the Lego into shoeboxes covered in silver foil and making extraordinary dioramas. Not really very extraordinary dioramas, but you get the gist. And then technical Lego really really advanced lego that suddenly involved diggers and tractors and all kinds of things much more advanced than the sort of kids lego so as i grew up lego kind of seemed to evolve with me and i think that's part of what makes lego so successful today's episode is all about lego obviously we're going to be looking at the origins where does the word lego come from and where did that idea of small plastic bricks that grip together originally come from My guest today is Daniel Konstansky, who has been obsessed with Lego since the age of three and his obsession has not dwindled. It has not not died. He's still obsessed by Lego. He builds amazing Lego models and has just released a book all about the history of Lego called The Secret Life of Lego Bricks. Welcome to the show, Daniel, in your very fine retro Star Wars t-shirt.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you.
0: Anyway, lovely to have you. Your Lego things, which I've seen, are incredible. Oh, well, thank you. I'll talk about those in a minute. I'm a massive Lego fan. I I did nothing in my childhood other than play with Lego. Why did you and I... Love Lego
1: so much. Well, I just loved it as a kid. I loved the aspect of the building and the creating led me to be an engineer as an adult. And now it's kind of my escape. You know, it's what I like to do after a long day of work, come home. And
0: do you still play with it? Do you still get as much joy from it now as as you did? when?
1: Absolutely. I mean, obviously, it's changed. You know, as a kid, it was, you know, bang the two minifigures together and fight and, you know, role play and things of that nature. As an adult, it's much more about building large models, building worlds, Things of that nature. And then it's also a way to connect with friends. There's a huge community of adult fans of LEGO that are out there. And so lots of different you know conventions and online groups and things of that sort mm. where we get together and chat and... Uh, you know, swap things. And so it's just, it's a lot of fun. It's a real part of my community.
0: For me, there was such a specific moment of Lego. I mean, I had sort of generic Lego when I was little, just kind of blocks and you could just make whatever you wanted. But then I remember the kind of space Lego came out in the Mm -hmm. late 70s, like 78, 79. I can't remember which set I had, but it was just life-changing. It was life-defining. And it was the first time we had the small little Lego figures. And it was the first time I remember instructions of how to build the thing. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was, yeah, it was good.
1: Space was my favorite as a kid as well. Had, you know, successive years of them and the different factions and all that. Oh, it was magical, magical.
0: It's really funny. For me, it's still nostalgia. I'm at my mum's house at the moment. And every time I come back to my mum's house, which is not very often because I'm a bad son, the (laughs) first thing I do is go upstairs and root around and find my old Lego box. And just running my hands through it, the sound and the feel of all the kind of just jumble of the flotsam and jetsam of all the, stupid stuff I used to make in Lego. I used to hide my cigarette packets in there, knowing my mum would never go in there. Uh, Anyway, sorry, I'm slightly digressing before we even start. Anyway, Uh, something to have you on the show. This is a podcast about inventions. And wow, the invention of Lego, goodness, that was a real, I don't know much about it. But obviously, it it was a world changing invention, really, Uh, and changed the way that children played. And just wherever you are in the world, it's such a huge brand. Can you take us way back to the beginnings of where and how and even before it invented? What was going on in the world and who was going on in the world that led to this?
1: It really is a fascinating story. So to really start it, you got to go back to the early 1900s. It's amazing how different the world was at the time that this story begins. We're in rural Denmark, a small town called Billund, which is in the kind of the western part of the country. So far, far away from Copenhagen and kind of the urban center, if you will, of Denmark at the time. And it's a small little farming village, uh, Billund. And there's a gentleman by the name of Ole Kirk Christiansen. Ole Kirk is how they refer to him at the company. And he was a carpenter. And it's a little bit misleading. And when we hear carpenter, you know, we tend to think of, you know, someone building small things, kind of in our modern setting.
0: Jesus. He was the Christ figure.
1: <laughs> yes, or Jesus. That's yes, funny. there you go. Well, to some of us Lego fans, you know, close equivalent. <laughs> no, exactly. And Ole Kirk, the best way to think of him is he was more of a contractor, building large structures, homes, barns, dairies, things of that nature. And so in 1916, when he was 24 years old, he purchased what was then called the Billand Woodworking Shop. So he kind of became the main carpenter, the main person that you went to for getting things constructed for the farmers. So, Nothing to
0: do with toys at this point.
1: Not a single thing to do with toys. Toys were absolutely not on his radar. In fact, at that time, toys were kind of considered a... Uh, almost a lesser thing. Like that was an afterthought, an extra that people who couldn't hack it in a better trade or building better things did. It was very low skill. It was very looked down upon to a certain extent. When he actually ended up starting to make toys later, which he did as a response to the Great Depression. It was a time where Denmark got hit in the same way as the rest of the world. People couldn't afford things. And so Ole Kirk started making toys with scrap wood in order to not waste things. And then the toys were what sold because parents wanted to give their kids some sort of reprieve from everything that was going on around them, the way the world had gone mad. And so he'd found that that was what he could sell. And that was how he got into making toys. So if it hadn't been for the Depression, he never would have.
0: So he was making barns and other structural things in his woodshop that he bought. And so it was the political situation of the time around the world. He fell on the hard times and thought, help, (laughs) what do I do now?
1: Exactly. Yep, that is exactly. And he sold them door to door at first, you know, to his friends and neighbors. And it wasn't until later that it kind of became a bigger thing that he was able to hire people back and start to really make something of it.
0: He didn't go from nothing to, hey, look, I've made Lego Star Wars. Uh, (laughs) What were the toys? Those are presumably made of wood.
1: Yeah, so it was kind of standard Danish toys at the time. So it was things like one of the most famous is he had this little rolling duck, very much like, you know, a child might have today. That would probably obviously be made of plastic You know, something that they pulled along and the beat kind of, you know, went up and down and up and down.
0: With an associated app that goes with it.
1: Yes. Yeah. Today it would have an app with it. (laughs) Definitely (laughs) not then. The the smartphones, you know, hadn't come to Denmark yet in the (laughs) 1930s. But uh, yeah, so and then vehicles were a lot of what else he did. So cars, boats, trucks, planes, things
0: of that nature. Do any of these toys exist, I wonder?
1: Oh, yeah. There's a a lively community on eBay and other places that buy and sell and trade. There's a whole niche of the adult fan community that's very focused on those early years, the wooden toys, the early Lego set. So, yeah, people find them. They still have them. And then Lego itself, of course, has some in their various archives and museums in Billund. Uh, So I've seen it. You can see them. Okay. I was actually just recently in... London for a signing of my book. And it's the 90th anniversary of the company. So they had a little display in the Lego store there in London, mm. and they actually had one of the ducks oh, sitting there. Wow. So they're definitely out there. And then there's a model that you can get. Uh, you can only get it in Billund, but there's now a Lego version of the original duck. Jamie Wheeler, a friend of mine, is the one who designed it. He's a designer for Lego
0: that's really really nice yeah he'd do well now middle class parents love buying wooden toys for children
1: yes yeah it's kind of come full circle hasn't it
0: yeah it's a bit like kind of buying french salt crystals that that, somehow that kind of salts okay for you and likewise neurotic parents buy wooden toys for their children
1: the transition is actually the kind of the next interesting part of that story because wooden toys were very popular and then there was kind of this um I don't want to say mystique, but they were looked upon more highly, and plastic was kind of, oh, that's you know that's a dirty material. Like, you know, good toys are made of wood. Uh, but Ole <laughs> yes. Kirk was very curious as plastic began to become a thing, both before and then especially during and most especially after World War II as that technology saw a lot of advancement during the war years. Yeah. And so he was very keen and very interested in it, and he was the only one. Like, the rest of the family was like you know dad because at this point he had four sons who worked with him in the company especially one in particular Godfred, uh, who they refer to as GKC Godfred Kirk Christensen so he was very opposed at first Ole Kirk wanted to buy a molding machine and everyone was like you know that's a silly investment why would we spend money on that you know we make good quality wooden toys plastic would just degrade our good name so it was actually in 1946 that he purchased one basically on his own. And everyone in the family was like, all right, you know, it's dad being dad. We'll just, you know, we'll let him have this one. And uh, he purchased it. And they believe it was one of, if not the first plastic injection molding machines in all of Denmark.
0: Where did he find this? Like, where, where was he?
1: He purchased it from a company in the UK, And then they shipped it over, it was delivered, and then brought to Bill and assembled in the basement, actually.
0: I'm trying to work out why, though. It's quite a leap to kind of be making wooden toys and sort of selling them to -to door-to-door. Did he have like an entrepreneurial spirit?
1: He was very interested in technology. He loved new technology, was kind of enamored of it. And we believe that it was at some sort of trade show that he saw a demonstration of an injection
0: molding machine. Got it. And did he see the sort of Lego potential of it? I mean, like when he saw that injection molding machine, had he had some kind of, I know I'm going to make little bricks and they're going to stick together.
1: No, so he was just more enamored with it from a technology side of things. Bricks and building blocks weren't really on his radar. But somehow, and we're not entirely sure of all the details of where it came from, but somehow related to purchasing that injection molding machine, often the suppliers at that time would bring little samples of things like, hey, you can make this almost like, a, you know, if you've got a 3D printer company now, they'll bring a little figurine or something to a show and say, hey, this is what you can make with our piece of equipment. And so somehow he got a small stackable brick as a sample that came with his molding machine. It wasn't a Lego brick. It didn't have all the bits and pieces, the studs and all that. The size was different. But that is where we believe he got
0: the idea. That's interesting. So basically, he's got this machine. He's got these kind of sample bricks. I mean, was he making other things with this machine, like plastic toys?
1: Yes, but primarily he was. For a long time, first with the plastics and then with the bricks themselves, they were kind of his... Little thing in the background, you know, everyone was just basically saying, okay, well, we'll just, you know, let him do this in the back, not as appeasement per se, but as let dad mess with the things that he wants to mess with. So, yes, so the building blocks originally were his, but there were a lot of other things. They did, you know, baby rattles, little wagons and things, a lot of the same types of things, but much smaller and, you know, made of plastic, obviously. So, because back then it was, you know, much harder to find, you know, the injection, the raw materials for it. It was hard to get the molds made, you know, wood they could do themselves. It was a very slow process in the early days.
0: I like the idea of those little blocks that were just kind of an offshoot, if you like, a kind of demonstration sitting on his desk. And he, there he is making other things and maybe keeping one eye on those bricks.
1: There's stories of him. And again, some of this is anecdotal.
0: We don't mind anecdotal. We like anecdotals. a bit of color, a bit of...
1: That's right. But there's stories of him carrying that little brick, that sample in his pocket and kind of running his fingers over it. And so he was thinking about it for a while. And it took three years. They got that first molding machine in 1946. And the first, what we call kind of proto Lego brick, they were called automatic binding bricks. He gave them a English name in honor of the Allies for liberating Denmark and the rest of Europe. Those came out in 1949, and they weren't Lego bricks in the sense that we would think of them today. They were completely hollow on the underside. So they did have studs on the top, the little round nodules on the top, but the underneath was completely open. So they really were more for stacking, which was very much how blocks were used at that time, right? Like today, there were, you know, children's blocks where you would just stack them. And so the studs on the top helped align them because they would line up with the open space underneath.
0: So you could build things, you could build like buildings with them.
1: You could stack, so you could build buildings. As long as you weren't trying to lift it, you could build it.
0: Was building things out of blocks a sort of child's toy back then?
1: Children's blocks were some of the most basic toys that there were. Um, And so, yes, those absolutely existed within the kind of toy ecosphere at that time.
0: So he's got this kind of plastic block and it's got these little four or six studs on, the sort of classic. When he sold those, did he just sell like a bunch of blocks or did he have instructions like, look, you can build this house or this building? Or
1: Yep. So at the beginning, they were purely just collections of blocks. Kind of cool, the old packaging, because you can still see some of the original packaging either in pictures or Lego has some of them. There were bunches of different colors of the blocks, kind of whatever plastic color they had. Um, there's actually some that are these beautiful, they called them marble. The plastic generated a lot of waste at that time, injection molding the different sprues and stuff. So they would kind of sweep it all in, they'd grind it together, all the various colors, and then they'd, in order to not waste it, use that. So it'd, it'd be this beautiful mix of colors.
0: Mm, nice. Was it called Lego, those bricks then?
1: So the company was called Lego at that time, right. but the bricks themselves, that original variant, was called automatic binding bricks.
0: I forgot to ask where the word Lego comes from. Does it mean anything? Is it Danish?
1: So it's a combination of two words, and I'm probably going to get my Danish pronunciation wrong here, but it's got And Ole Kirk came up with the name himself. He wanted a new name for his company, and he had a contest with his employees in the 1930s. He was going to give a bottle of wine to whoever came up with the best name, but he chose his own, so he got the bottle of wine. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) So the company was called Lego. So all the original products, all the wooden stuff, had the stamp of Lego on the bottom of it.
0: Got it. What does Lego mean? Does it have a meaning? You you said it comes from Lego. What did you say? it was? Lego it? Lego.
1: Yeah, it means play well. Leg got play well. Good name. Yep. And then what's kind of funny is then they discovered later, and I forget what language it is. I don't don't remember if it was Latin or Greek, but there's a word that's very similar to Lego, kind of the same pronunciation that means I assemble or I put together. So kind of a a happy coincidence there.
0: That's the ridiculous coincidence. Yeah. (laughs) So you can stack things, you can build up, but obviously you can't build a Millennium Falcon yet.
1: That comes a bit later. A little bit later, yeah. Would have been a little hard at that time.
0: What was the key invention in Lego there? Was it the fact that suddenly... You could put a brick on top and then lift it up.
1: Yes. So there's kind of a two pieces to that part of the story. So again, for a while, these were just kind of novelty products that Lego had on the side. But then in 1954, Godfred. so we're now talking about Ole Kirk's son, who is kind of the next major player in the company. So he ended up as a result of a conversation with a buyer from a department store in Copenhagen that he met on the way back from a toy fair in England. So what happened was he was talking to this gentleman who was named maybe murdering the Danish pronunciation but Trolls Peterson. He kind of offhandedly mentioned like you know there's no system to put together toys and come up with good ideas and things of that and Godford really got thinking about that. And so he went back and kind of assessed the entire company portfolio and so in 1954 that was around eh, somewhere between 200 and 300 products. And he realized that the only thing that they could kind of apply a systematic process to was these bricks of his dad's that he up to this point, kind of ignored. And so all of a sudden, Godford gets really homed in on the automatic binding bricks. And at that point, they were just called Lego bricks. But again, they still just stackable. But what he realized was that you could launch a series of products based around these bricks that would all work together. And so rather than it just being kind of individual toys that children would mix and match on their own and kind of have to imagine that you could come up with this system, and that's what he called it, the Lego system in play.
0: What do you mean by system? Would it be like, okay, you'd buy a town or a car that you build. What do we mean by system in this sense?
1: That's a great question. So what they mean is that all of the various toys, so you could buy, for example, they had these mats, right? That would have a layout of roads and places for buildings and stuff. And then they had little cars that Lego manufactured. And again, not made of bricks at this point. They're much more like what we would think of a Hot Wheels or a Matchbox car today, but scaled to the roads. And then they would sell sets where you could buy a little office building, a little gas station, a little church, and they would fit on the mat and they'd be built of bricks, but they'd be scaled to those cars. And so you could create this whole little layout. And originally, HO trains were popular at the time. So they kind of envisioned like, hey, you could scale these to about the same size as trains. And the idea would be that children could build these huge layouts where every product that they bought that was made with Lego bricks would all work together. Obviously the bricks could be mixed and matched, but it would all be scaled so that you would have this system of things that were designed to work together as opposed to having to by individual toys that weren't intended to be played with together, from a design perspective.
0: The inspiration for that came from a chance conversation with someone.
1: Chance conversation on a, a proper
0: light bulb moment. Ching.
1: That's right. There is some of these just fascinating, like little pivots in the Lego story, where you know, if they hadn't brought that sample of that brick, yeah. <laughs> if you know, Godfred had been late and taken a different ferry, you know, back or something like that,
0: he wouldn't have met that guy who said the word system.
1: Exactly. But then at the same time it's fascinating that Lego was prepared. Like they'd done the work and they were prepared to take advantage of those light bulb moments that happened.
0: That's it. You create your own luck.
1: Exactly. So that system in play was launched in 1955, but that was kind of only the first part of the story of the kind of what we call the modern Lego brick. So that you were asking about when did it kind of move away from something that you could just be stacked to something that was on its way to being able to become a Millennium Falcon. And that actually happened in 1958. So the next piece of the story is that children were starting to write because Lego was getting more popular. The system in play you know, was expanding, it was popular, it was something that children were really enjoying. And, but they were getting frustrated because of that stacking problem. The bricks couldn't grip each other very well. They had a little bit of it, but for the most part it was just something that you could stack. And so Godfred was met with a gentleman by the name of Axel, who ran the affiliate office in Germany. And they were basically saying, like, we've got to come up with something that allows these bricks to have more grip. Eventually, we become known as clutch power, the ability of two bricks to kind of grab on and hold on to each other. Axel and Godford basically just stayed up all night sketching designs. And we actually have the piece of paper that they sketched it on. All these different layouts of ways that, well, maybe this would work, maybe this would work. And so they just patented all of them. (laughs) Max patent. The original Danish patent has all these different designs for things underneath the brick to grab onto the studs. And then they just tried experiments to see which would work. So they kind of patented everything they could think of and then worked it out over the next few years. And what they ended up with was the modern Lego brick, which has the studs on top and then the tubes underneath that when you push it together, they create that clutch power. And that is what allows the bricks to stay together.
0: As an engineer and as a Lego builder and historian, I want you to really explain to me how two Lego bricks stay together and can be pulled apart with the right amount of force.
1: Absolutely. So, the way that it works is that so, imagine if you've just got kind of two of the standard two by four bricks, you know, the red brick that you just picture whenever you hear the word Lego. Mm-hmm. So, what happens when you push them together? So, you've got the top brick and the bottom brick, the walls of the top brick as they are pushed against the studs of the bottom brick. The studs actually slightly push out against the wall. And you can actually feel it if you've got two LEGO bricks that are stacked together. If you run your finger along from bottom to top, you can feel where that wall has been pushed out ever so slightly. It's very subtle, but it's there. So you're actually deforming the wall of the brick. But the plastic wants to squeeze back in. It wants to return to its normal shape. So you've got this outward pushing force from the stud that's forcing the wall to deform. And that wall is trying, like a rubber band, trying to spring back into its normal position. So that push and pull between the stud and the deformed wall, the deflecting wall, is what creates that grip.
0: Mm.
1: And LEGO's done all these experiments you know, to figure out exactly what that gripping force should be, and they you know, got it all figured out. So.
0: We'll be back after this short break. Hello, I'm James Rogers, and over on the History Hit Warfare podcast, I bring you cutting-edge military histories from around the world. Why was Sitting Bull such a remarkable leader? What was Napoleon's greatest ever battle? How did the Cuban Missile Crisis almost turn the Cold War hot? And who dropped the world's largest nuclear bomb on the Arctic? Through interviews with world-leading historians, policy experts, and the veterans who served We find the answers to these questions and so much more. So come and join us on the History Hit Warfare podcast, where we're on the front lines of military history. So tell me about kind of Lego set one, as we would recognise it as Lego. What did it look like? We've got this idea of the system. We've got this new way of bricks clutching together. What did the first sort of products that combined those two things look like?
1: So what's interesting about that is that there really wasn't a product. There wasn't a hard, you know, before this date, it was this and before and after it was this. Because remember, at this point, they'd had the system in play for at least three years. And they had a bunch of different types of bricks. And so it was this slow transition where as molds needed to be replaced or as they brought new pieces into the portfolio, They would be designed with the new studs and tubes and all of that. But there was a time of transition where boxes would have some of both for a while. And then it was just over the years, they slowly phased out all the old designs. And then there's all these interesting stories of, oh, hey, you know, the old type popped up in this country for a few years as people were getting rid of stock and things of that nature. So it was a transition more than a hard and fast before and after.
0: Was it a big hit? I mean, when did sort of Lego suddenly become this kind of global phenomenon? You know, all through the 70s, Lego was massive. But then it sort of changed in the 80s and became technical Lego and other kind of iterations. But when did it first become this big global Brand.
1: So again, much like with the Brick itself, it was a slow and steady process. They started in Denmark, they expanded out into the Scandinavian countries, Norway, Sweden. A big victory was when they got into Germany. It then became very popular there. So they would kind of move almost country by country. First beginning in Europe, then of course they would jump over and introduce it in America. And they would often start with kind of partnerships. Like Lego in America at first was licensed. It wasn't manufactured by the company here. And so they would partner with a local manufacturer and license the product to them. And then eventually they would then come in behind that, take over and open their own sales office, manufacture or import the products and things of that nature. So it was just kind of the slow, steady march. Almost any country that entered it inevitably in a year or two would become very popular because... You know, it was so well designed, children loved to build. And so very quickly they would capture that kind of construction segment, if you will, of the toy market. Kids who were predisposed to liking to build would connect with Lego bricks and then they'd kind of go from there.
0: There's that famous Lego advert that does the rounds on the internet, on social media every now and again, of this young girl building kind of stuff out of Lego and everyone looks at Yes, this is how children should play, you know, in a sort of gender-free we can all do build what we want, let your imagination go environment. And it's obviously sort of been slightly politicized now when we look at that advert in today's sort of culture. But I sort of wonder back then, was that the main ethos of Lego that boys, girls, whoever can play with it and you can build what you want?
1: Yeah, so very much so. There has always been a large component of Lego's product portfolio. That is just kind of bricks you know you can build whatever you want the imagination and it have been for a very long time and then of course mixed in with that have been products that were kind of targeted at the interests of you know specific groups of children children who want you know really highly complicated technical type builds obviously duplo targeting you know younger children who aren't ready for the small lego bricks yet so yes there's always been a portion of the product line that has just kind of been for whoever whatever they want to make that sort of thing
0: The space Lego that came out in the late 70s was very much... You know, Star Wars had just come out, Close Encounters had just come out. There was a whole slew of science fiction Spielberg and Spielberg-esque films. And Lego seemed to capture very much the zeitgeist of that time.
1: They did, yeah. And that was another one of those kind of perfect things happening, coming everything coming together at once, because they launched the minifigure at the same time that they introduced what now we're to the third generation. So first we had Ole Kirk, then we had Godfred, and now we're to Godfrey's
0: son, Keld. Crikey, so it's all one family?
1: Yep, it's all one wow. family to this day. It's still a family-owned company. Jesus, they've done well. Oh, yes, yes.
0: What's my bloody family been doing? Nothing. Sitting around... Faffing about.
1: Come on. Come on, Dad. Where's my multi-billion dollar company from back in the day?
0: Oh, I've wasted my life. I know, Jeez. telling you.
1: So but he came in with this idea in the late 70s, because at that point the product portfolio had kind of stagnated. It was still very much just variants of what they'd been doing for now decades. And he came in with this idea that he called system within a system. So kind of a play on that old idea of the Lego system. But his idea was, let's introduce worlds. And that's the themes that you and I grew up with. Space, castle, town, eventually pirates. And now, of course, all the license themes. So that all came from his idea in the mid-70s. And it just came about that he had that idea at the same time that they were bringing in the minifigures, which, of course, are just that perfect synergy of little people to populate it. And then, of course, we get into the late 70s and 80s where the cartoon craze happens, you know, mini. You know, Star Wars happened where all of a sudden these action figures are this huge thing. And that's just what everyone wanted to play with. And Lego was right there. Again, they couldn't have seen that coming, but they had their models with their figures and it was just perfect timing.
0: Brilliant engineering, brilliant marketing. Yes. As you were growing up, did you have a favorite lego set like i had a favorite
1: lego set oh absolutely so well, I, I had a couple but i was a lego space kid i absolutely loved lego space same bar none so that was definitely my favorite theme
0: favorite piece of a lego set
1: early 80s when they were doing some of the space sets they came up with what we call it the quarter dome so it was this big piece it was a transparent window and if you had four of them you could make this big enclosed dome something very you know right out of sci-fi very futuristic and that, oh man, that because it meant you had to have a big set to get those. They, they weren't that prevalent. And so that was my dream piece. My holy grail was to be able to make that enclosed dome. I had a friend who had four of them. So I only ended up getting two of them as a kid. Now I have like 12 of them. So uh, yeah. <laughs> I've awesome. definitely lived that dream. But uh, for me, that was the piece.
0: I had my space Lego set. Then I extended it with old shoe boxes, which I covered in silver paper and like built like a kind of like massive diorama of stuff. That's awesome. But for me, the classic six-lug Lego piece... Red. I'd always be looking for those, my go-to block. Hey, listen, thank you so much. Just finally, just before we end, you make these incredible models out of Lego still. What's the most amazing thing you've seen made out of Lego? I mean, the, some of the stuff that I've seen you build is just like ridiculous. It's like art. What's the your kind of pinnacle of Lego building that you're aware of?
1: Oh, in terms of like within the fan community? Oh, gosh.
0: Yeah, just like kind of like when you look at it, you go, holy crap, that's awesome.
1: Yeah, so there are some truly amazing models out there. So I think one of the most amazing I've seen is there's a Lego Hogwarts castle that was built almost to minifigure scale. Uh, it was like a million bricks or something like that. And it's Crikey. just monstrous, just absolutely monstrous.
0: Does Lego give you the bricks for this? Do they just like send you... Sh- How does it work?
1: We have to buy them. You have to buy them? Oh, yeah.
0: How much does a million Lego bricks cost? Crikey.
1: Oh, I don't even want to think about it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> when you make models, this, I've always wanted to know this, and you're making, let's say, a permanent model for a museum or whatever do you glue them together me
1: personally i do not but yes most of the models if something is designed specifically for display in a public place kind of on a permanent basis then yes often those models will be glued just in case you know to keep someone from running in and touching it and breaking it and that sort of thing but most fan models that you see at like conventions or on the internet we don't glue that's a you know that's tisk tisk. you uh, you don't do that
0: <laughs> i know i'm imagining the sort of lego purist way, he's definitely glued that <laughs> <And> sort of, <laughs> I can imagine those sort of niche conversations within the fan world and the future of Lego I mean, I guess it's, it shows no sign of abating whatever is fashionable at the moment in popular culture Lego seems to be l- latching onto it
1: Yeah, no, they show no signs of slowing down and continue to post good results and you know continue to be loved all over the world So
0: Yes, brilliant Hey, listen, Daniel thank you so much for coming on the show and, My pleasure and just sort of taking us through that history it's been really lovely I'm going to go and dig out my Lego set now And your book is out? It's out now?
1: Yeah. So unfortunately, it's a little, it's slightly different model. It was something you had to pre-order. Oh, it's
0: exclusive.
1: (laughs) Hopefully demand and interest will be high enough that uh, they'll- they'll... People
0: will figure it out. If they want it, they'll figure it out. Hey, Daniel, absolutely terrific to talk to you. Thank you very much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me. It has been a pleasure.
0: Okay, that's it. Thanks for listening. Hope that's inspired you to dig your old Lego sets out of the loft and build something fantastical and marvellous and amazing. Don't forget, if you've enjoyed the episode, give us a rating and a review. We'd very much appreciate it. It helps others discover the show, and that can only be a good thing because we like the same things. And also, we love hearing from you, so do get in touch. I will see you on the next episode. Thank you for your company. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive